1996, the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and the Drama League co-sponsored a discussion with director Pamela Berlin, SDC Executive Director Barbara Hauptman, and SDC Attorney Ronald Schechtman about protection of intellectual property rights for stage directors. This discussion is moderated by David Diamond. Hi, I'm Ellen Rosconi, Producing Director of Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation, and you're listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. This afternoon we're discussing intellectual property rights, a topic that has uh, had a lot of press lately and a lot of us have been talking about. Um, the hope is that we'll be able to share some information with you so you'll be more informed um, about what your rights are. And there he is. He's Back wet. Back. He's all wet. Oh my God, look at you. <laughs> uh, we're going to we're going to approach uh, the topic uh, in the following way. First of all, we're going to define intellectual property rights. Then we're going to look at the contracts that SSDC has and how intellectual property rights are protected in them. We'll look at current uh, court cases and talk about where they're at and in this as regards this issue. And then we'll talk about how you can, um, what you can do to protect your own intellectual property rights and what you can do and what you can't do. So um, on our illustrious panel of uh, geniuses, <laughs> we have uh, the executive director of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, Barbara Halpin, um, the counsel for the society, Ronald Checkman, and a uh, member of the executive board, uh, acclaimed director, Pamela Berlin. So I will uh, turn it over to you guys. and. Uh, Feel free to ask questions. We'll go till about 6.30. Thank you. Did you get the big bucks for me? Yeah, right. um, first of all, let me ask a couple of questions. Um, how many people know what property rights are? Oh, let's do it this way. How, how many people don't know what property rights are as far as the director's concerned? Oh, good. Then you don't have to define it. <laughs> yes, define it. Define it. Um, property rights or intellectual property rights for a director, as is defined in our collective bargaining agreement, um, are the stage movements that a director adds to a production. It is the physicalization from the text to the stage. Um, there are other issues around property rights, but let's start with this one. This is basically protecting if you work on a production, if you're hired to direct a production, and what we say to the producer or what the contract says to the producer is that what you create belongs to you. He has the right to use it for a certain period of time and perhaps to license it for a certain period of time. But at the end, it always reverts back to you and is your property. Does anybody want to add anything to that? Well, does anyone ever hear the words work for hire? 
Watch out. Watch out whenever you see them. Because if you don't work under a SSTC collective bargaining agreement, you're probably going to have that problem. And that is basically a principle in the law that says when you work for someone and you create for someone, that presumptively what you create in the course of your employment is owned by, guess by whom? Your employer. And unless there is a written agreement to the contrary, your employer will own what you create, whether it be choreography, whether it be stage direction, whether you write a play, if it's in the course of employment, those words would be owned um, by the employer. So one of the most important elements of the SSDC collective bargaining agreement, and this is in, in these provisions involving property rights are in all of the collective bargaining agreements, in all of the arrangements. And it basically says that anything you create in the nature of stage direction choreography is owned by you, cannot be used by the employer without your license or permission, except for the sole purpose of the production for which you've been hired, and certain license arrangements that are spelled out in the collective bargaining agreement. Those of you who may not work with a SSDC employer or under an SSDC agreement, it's a very important caveat or a very important understanding to have or to know that what you do and what you create uh, really may be claimed as the property of someone else. So that, you know, th this is it's really where one starts with, you know, <coughs> defining uh, where or how the property is vested. Um, it also means that if this property should go forward without you, it does not go with your directions or your choreography. Those are yours. And that can be a real issue in terms of whether someone wants to replace you, or etc. Because that is your material and, and belongs to you and comes back to you. Um, the SSDC has fought long and hard for the property right provisions in our contracts. Um, we have now moved forward in terms of protecting uh, uh, property rights for our members in various arenas and with various suits that have been filed. I do think that the one thing I would like to establish, because we know it's complicated. There are really two separate issues in terms of a director. Let's talk exclusively about a director. You guys jump in here. Mm -hmm. okay. Okay. Yeah. I know I'm um, One is when you create something for the stage, and that is your work, and that belongs to you. And if someone should come, another director should come and copy that and claim it is theirs, that is an issue that we have fought against. And I'll, we'll go into more detail about that. That's one side of it. The other issue is when a director works with a writer in terms of developing work and where your property rights lie in terms of that. And that's a totally different issue 
It's a controversial issue. It's a sensitive issue. It really has to do with your relationship with the playwright from the very beginning about whether you want to claim some sort of right based on the fact that you had input in terms of character development, in terms of structure as far as the play is concerned. But it's two separate issues. Is that clear? And ask questions as, as we go along. What we're going to talk a, a, about right now is the first issue, and that is about someone taking your work. And we have had three very distinct cases, uh, one that is still in litigation, which Mr. Shetman is more than happy to tell you about. Is that what you're talking Yes. Um, and here's Mr. Shetman. <laughs> Well, these cases have been uh, absolutely, to, to me and to anyone who's familiar with them and to the uh, professional legal community, these have been interesting cases. And unfortunately, interesting legal cases are like interesting diseases. I'm not sure anyone ever wants to have one. Um, and, uh, and we are really forging uh, uh, some new ground. Uh, less so, I must say, in the area of, of choreography. I say that because in the copyright law, the copyright law has a very expansive definition of what can be copyright, what kind of unique creative work that is put in a recordable form, a recordable form, um, a fixed form, uh, is, is the language. And, um, and the law actually gives a number of examples that is not exclusive of what kind of intellectual property can be copyrighted. And among those listed as examples, you should know, are choreography. So there's been a, there was a recognition with the new copyright law, which I believe went into effect in the 70s, um, which is the first time they specifically cited choreography as something to be protected. And then among many other examples, they include pantomime. And I say that because we've used the combination of pantomime and choreography to suggest that what's created by a director um, is also protected under the copyright uh, laws. The first case we had was a case uh, involving choreography, and it was a choreography to Annie, which uh, was showing up all over the country on the road. Uh, as we had an enterprising tour operator who uh, uh, insisted on hiring dancers or others who had worked in New York production and then giving them the express direction to recreate everything they could about the choreography in the New York production all around the country. Um, and uh, we were able to, uh, well, we, we wrote a few letters and thought it was self-evident that this producer should come forward and and uh, make appropriate settlement payment to the choreographer, but uh, I don't think the producer took this very seriously until he got uh, served with a complaint in the Southern District of the United States Federal Court. Then we got a call back. Um, it got his attention, at least, and, uh, <clears throat> and it led to a fairly quick settlement uh, of that matter. I don't think it was, he really didn't even deny the merits that the work was being copied, and it would have been a far stretch to suggest that uh, that the work that was copied wasn't legally recognizable as the property of uh, uh, Mr. Gennaro. 
and we settled on his behalf. Um, very shortly after that case, um, we had the first case of a director arise, and that was Jerry Gutierrez. Um, and Jerry, as many of you may recall, did a, uh, a reinterpretation, a very, uh, very uh, successful one, of Most Happy Felt. And it was a major reworking of this uh, work that uh, hadn't been done in New York in a long time. And he reconfigured it in the most uh, significant ways of changing the, uh, uh, with the permission of the estate, uh, changing the order of a uh, number of scenes and, and numbers and creating stage business that never was used or indicated in any script or any prior production. And uh, it was... Uh, uh, quite a novel and, and exciting production. And Jerry, on his own, uh, who's probably spent too many hours before the television watching court TV for his own good, um, um, came up with the idea that he should take the stage manager's script, which he obtained, which included all of his stage directions, and send them down, send it down to Washington uh, with a copyright application. The copyright application is a very simple document. And he attached the script to it and uh, um, sent it down with a $5, $15, $25, call it was at the time. And uh, uh, I don't think he thought too much more of it until he heard that there was a production in a large, this is a dinner theater in Chicago, um, and they had hired the lead from New York, the lead actor, and they had paid for and obtained the rights to the set from the set designer, and the set was shipped out. Now, as many of you know better than I certainly, is that uh, when you start off with a set from someone's production, you're <laughs> probably going to get very close to some other, uh, uh, other elements of the other person's production. Well, if there was any doubt or any question about it, in this case, the, use the, word, the putative director, the supposed director of the Chicago production, um, went to Lincoln Center, and at this time there was no limitation on his ability to do so. He labored. He expended, I'm sure, much blood, sweat, and tears looking at the videotape of Jerry's production. So much so that he was able to even copy the words Jerry had added and created in his production that, uh, by coincidence, showed up in the Chicago production. I want to caution you that when I talk about words, and when I talk about even changing the order of what is in the script, that the SSDC has never asserted that that is the property of the director. And we're not suggesting that tonight or any other time. I'm only using it as an indication or reflection of how slavishly this director went about copying every single thing Jerry did. And Jerry heard about how his production uh, was uh, uh, resembled in uh, um, Chicago. <coughs> and being the cool-minded, laid-back individual he is. Uh, he got on a plane as fast as he could. Couldn't get his guns on a plane with him, but uh, out he went to Chicago and uh, indeed saw the production and, 
and recognized that uh, um, that his his production had been copied top to bottom, you know, front to front to back, and uh, um, element after element after element, um, with no recognition of his work and no admission, uh, a credit or otherwise that, that his work had been taken. Interestingly, he had received requests to use his stage directions, to use his version of the play in a production that was done in Texas, and he had licensed it for a, for a very modest sum and, uh, and, and some appropriate credit, and uh, that was perfectly acceptable to him. Um, here again, we wrote a few letters, and uh, we got the same kind of response we got before, but by now we knew the drill, and uh, sure enough, nothing like a summons and a complaint to get their attention, and we got their attention again. Um, this case, uh, they brought in lawyers, and the lawyers started posturing, and, uh, and just about the time where they were going to come to New York, um, we got a settlement offer that involved uh, uh, a payment of a significant fee, which under the settlement offer we cannot disclose, and under the settlement agreement, and also Jerry received, I think the production closed by then, but they took out an ad in Variety, which was also done in the Gennaro case as well, acknowledging in Variety, and it was a quarter page ad, um, the uh, crediting uh, Jerry and prior case for, uh, uh, for their work and, and the productions they had done. Um, what really is a significant part of the Jerry Gutierrez story is that when he subsequently produced, subsequently directed, excuse me, the heiress on Broadway, and I talked with him about his view of his intellectual right, his property rights, and what he had done about copywriting there, he told me that he did not copyright the stage directions for the heiress because he didn't feel that what was created in that production, in those by those stage directions, was either so unique or involved sufficient movement and sufficient elements that could be fixed or recorded that he would copyright. And I think that's a very important distinction because this whole issue tends to uh, scare a lot of people in the business, whether it be producers or whether it be dramatists particularly dramatists, um, and, and even other artists, too, who, who say, hey, wait a minute, you know, what, what and, and this is really the hard question that, that, that is over the, the whole uh, issue, and, and when I say it makes it an interesting case, and that is, what is it that a stage director, what is it that a stage director creates that is protectable? You know, can we protect enter stage left? Can we, can we protect um, grimace? Can we protect, you know, more feeling, louder, softer? You know, many of the kinds of things that a director will say or do. Even more complicated, to what extent when an actor creates a gesture or a motion, or when you hire an actor to succeed the original actor, and you say to that actor, do what the first actor did. To what extent does that act? You know, to what extent does what a director creates in a stage production 
create a lien, a claim, on any subsequent production by the plaintiff. And that's what really blew things up in the Gutierrez um, uh, case with Most Happy Felt and really sort of set, the, set some battle lines that the um, lesser estate came forward with a very cranky lawyer, old gentleman, who uh, thought it was outrageous that a director would submit any claim that he had any property rights in connection with his production. This lawyer wrote the copyright office and said that the lesser estate objected to the filing of any copyright, that it was illegal, that it could not be filed, that it interfered with, corrupted, polluted, violated the, the copyright rights that the lesser estate had in, uh, in Most Happy Fellow. Um, the copyright office did not accept his objections, and they wrote a letter that I can tell you was utterly uh, incomprehensible and inexplicable, so that everybody who looks at this letter argues that it means whatever they want it to. <laughs> None of us know what the hell it means, but uh, the bottom line is is that uh, Jerry's uh, copyright uh, remained filed and remained effective, but I can't tell you precisely why the Copyright Office uh, did or did not do anything. Um, which is probably appropriate because a letter from a bureaucrat in the Copyright Office shouldn't have any significant legal effect uh, in any event. Um, but it really drew some battle lines and, and, and set off some alarms that, that have people very polarized in the community. And, and I think a lot of it has to do with, an understand, with, with a lack of understanding um, of what cases the SSDC uh, believes are meritorious and, you know, and what standards we believe are relevant to pursuing this kind of litigation. Um, we think mo a most happy fellow was one of those cases. We think it was because there was, you know, strict, there was just compelling evidence that the director of that production intended to copy Jerry's work. I have a quick question on yeah. that. The, the set was licensed. They paid the set designer. The set they literally licensed, bought okay. the they bought the boards. Uh, and, and the set designer received a fee for it. Um, they hired the lead actor who, you know, took all that was developed in a New York production and, and brought it there and all the other elements. Um, that uh, that there was the copying, that the copying was clear, certain, and substantial, and that there was a failure of any recognition uh, of the work by financial or, or other means, or other credit, to the original uh, director. Um, the next case that came along, and is still along with us, um, involves a production of Love, Valor, and Passion, um, the New York production, productions done by Joe Mantello at uh, Manhattan Theatre Bubbleman on Broadway, and uh, a production that was done down in, uh, the, in Florida at the Caldwell Theatre um, by a director named Michael Hall. Um, the story here is somewhat the same, and that is, is that, that Joe here had a new work that he began uh, a collaboration 
with, uh, on which he began a collaboration with Terence McMillan, and, uh, and, and indeed a very successful one. And they worked through this and did the production, and uh, the story sort of goes the same way. Uh, we don't have a Lincoln centerpiece, because I should tell you that as a result of what happened on A Most Happy Fella and the uh, position of the SSDC, that if you want to now go see uh, the director's work, you're going to need, you're going to have to sign up and get permission from the director uh, to see a video of a particular production. So that, in fact, we have put some controls on that, not to bar people from having the opportunity to see other work, but to at least make sure there's some understanding of who's doing it and why it's being done and how it's being done. In John Mantello's case, he got a report from a friend, an actor, I guess, who had been in, had been one of the substitute actors in a New York production and had been involved in the casting and I guess had been involved in the, uh, in particular, uh, fresh in my mind, but involved with the production down at the Caldwell who gave him a heads up that, oh boy, where do you see what's going on down there? He wasn't in it, um, he but he had seen it. He and that, my God, they took your work. and. Once again, uh, one of our members uh, got on a plane and uh, went down and sat there with smoke coming out of his ears as he, you know, and, and I get, and I'm, I'm not exact, I'm only barely exaggerating that, that the response of, of these individuals to seeing this happen was just incredible anger uh, and a personal front they, they took to see the complete replication of their work. Well, we had instructed uh, Joe to take uh, copious notes, and he did, and he brought back the details. And again, it was detail after detail after detail, which we'll get into in a moment, uh, about what had been done there. And, um, and we contacted the Caldwell, and we wrote them the letter, and at least we got a response here. By now, they, I guess we had begun to establish some credibility. And they said, oh, what do you, you know, Indeed, we, we did do certain things, but we had obtained the rights to do this from the dramatist play service. We said, really? And they said, yes, because they gave us photographs, they gave us all kinds of details and information about the production, and we, in fact, were told that they wanted it to be as much like the New York production as possible. So, in fact, we used these elements to replicate. This is their lawyer talking beginning of our uh, about uh, what had happened and, and so that we had these rights. They never seem to understand, and to this day I'm not sure they understand, it's a bit frustrating dealing with them and trying to uh, resolve this case. They don't understand that if Joe Mantello didn't give Drama's Play Service rights to his work, then Drama's Play Service couldn't transfer rights to use Joe Mantello. But instead, what they're sort of saying is that Joe, the director's work, sort of is subsumed. It is sort of adopted. It merges into the script and the production. And in effect, the author owns it. And of course, we got the rights from the author and through Drama's Play Service. Therefore, we have Joe's, Joe's rights. If you have trouble with some of this logic, I, please help me later because I do as well. Um, 
But they have, and I say in some consultation with the dramatist um, guild, sort of taken the position that anything that's added to a play um, becomes the property of the author, which we don't think will hold any water, and we don't think it's a legally defensible position. But what it started is a very important initiative by the SSDC, and that is that we contact, well, we, didn't, we, we looked at the whole relationship between the Samuel French Drummond's Play Service and all of the publishers, and the tradition of publishing the scripts that many of you, and probably all of you, have, have worked with at some time. What you may not realize is that they obtained the stage manager's script, and they obtained the ground plan, usually, from uh, the stage manager for the production. Sometimes they even get pictures and sketches of costumes, as I understand it. And other times they obtain stage directions that have been added uh, by word uh, into the script from the director. But the only one who transfers any rights is the playwright, and conversely, the only one who receives any revenues or any receipts from these productions is the playwright. And I think this is the mo this really frames the issue, apart from who creates what in a play, and that is, if we accept that the creation of a successful play, which may subsequently be licensed, a production which may subsequently be used, and we accept it's a collaborative process and a collaborative work, why then is it only the playwright who grants those rights and who receives compensation therefore? And again, where it's easiest to understand is because we all understand that when you that certain things people do own and can be fixed, we think of something like a ground plan and a, and a set design. And what happened there again is they took the set design, the ground plan created by Loy Orsinas, the set designer for Love, Valor, Compassion, completely replicated on their stage. Um, the, we consulted and talked to the uh, designers union, and uh, they indeed uh, found this case and this issue of interest, and uh, they supported uh, Loy Orsinas' effort to bring a case uh, on his own right. And Lloyd brought a case. It has since been settled where he received a full fee under the applicable Lord contract for his set design um, and uh, settled the litigation accordingly. Um, I think it is such an important wake-up call to this tradition in the business, if you will, where there is a presumption that whatever you can get your hands on from New York production, you can take and use. And for the artists who create those elements of the production, there's a real question of a, wait a minute, you know, if others are entitled to compensation here, am I entitled to something? And I ask that as a question because I'm not sure the answer is always certain or clear or even consistent. Um, and that is, you know, again, overhanging all of this is what does a stage director create and what does he or she own uh, in, in those circumstances? Um, giving you some details that I think are compelling again in the Love, Valor, Compassion case and why this is another case that's there. And I remind you, this is a
process has been going on for five or six years, and we've only had two cases involving director's rights. So this is something that, that we believe involves very narrow circumstances where we've become involved. We're not suggesting that you know, every production, you know, where we're not suggesting that when a director is inspired by another director's work, where a director, in fact, pays homage to we're not talking about where some element or aspect of one director's work may show up. We're talking about a director who says, I'm not going to do a production here. I'm going to copy another director. Those are the circumstances where we feel, you know, uh, uh, a compelling certain need uh, to, to take some action where we have. Can I, can I stop you for just a second? Also, in the two cases, the directors who replicated the work were not members of the union. And the directors whose work was replicated were members of the union. If something were like this were to happen between two SSDC members, we do have an entire grievance procedure within our work rules of the union to get it settled internally. And the hearing officer is his, really is his 300-pound teamster. That's you know, right. They really take care of it wonderfully. So yeah, they, they get together in a room, they work it out, no problem. Um, let me just finish the, the LBC, and then we can, Pam, can I add something, and then we can open it up. Some of the aspects that, that are curious and interesting, the script for LBC, well, even before that, in Discovery, we found out certain things like they sent out to all of, the, all of the subscribers of the Caldwell Theater a picture of the opening tableau, the, when the lights go on, of the LVC production. And, and if any of you saw it, you may recall there's a large dollhouse in the middle of the uh, stage. And they said to their subscribers, does anyone have a dollhouse that looks just like this because we want to use it for our production? Um, this is still a group that says that they didn't copy uh, anything Joe did. It gets better. Um, in the production, the script that Terrence wrote, and, the script, and Terrence writes very few stage directions in his scripts, but in, in the opening of LBC, his, the first stage direction is Bear State. So bare stage is all that the script, that's what they bought from Samuel French, is something that said bare stage. Now, this is how Joe Mantello, and we'll pass these around in a minute, chose to fill the bare stage. This is what he created. Now, if you took this picture and copyrighted this picture, and you then copied the picture, and sold the other picture for $5, you would be violating someone's copyright. This tableau, this picture on stage, Joe created, setting the characters around this dollhouse, and then certain movement after that. This, by coincidence, is the picture of the Caldwell opening tableau. The actors are not only in the same position, nowhere indicated in the script, around the dollhouse, but where they have their knees crossed and their hands placed and their hand in their pocket and an open shirt and underpants, none of which, whatever it may be, will pass these around. 
it is such an effort that when you look at these quickly, you're not even sure which production it is. In fact, what they basically admitted is, they did admit, is that they held up the picture of the New York production as the, as I say, the putative director of the Florida production created that opening tableau for his production. After a certain dialogue, these characters on the script, it said, go to their respective bedrooms. They go into four different bedrooms. And Joe tells this anecdote that he was in the early readings of this play and as they were you know, beginning the process, he turned to Terrence and said, how the hell are we going to do four bedrooms on a bare stage? And Terrence chuckled and said, you're the director, that's your problem. <laughs> Which is apocryphal for this, this case. So Joe's solution to the problem was that they created a blackout and then the lights came on with four rectangles of bright light in which were placed the various colors of the men. And they were placed in certain places on the stage, and uh, this couple was here, and this couple here, none of which again indicated the script. You probably won't be surprised by now if I told you the solution that the Florida director came up with for putting these actors in their uh, various bedrooms. And it goes on and on, where they moved there, how they did the swimming scene, how they did the hand in the garbage disposal scene, how they did you know, how they solved every problem and every issue and every question of how you move the, the direction, how you move the production from the page to the stage. And all of the directorial solutions showed up uh, on that uh, uh, Florida stage. Um, even choices of music, even costume choices, um, a Nancy, you know that cartoon character Nancy, there was a Nancy t-shirt that Nathan Lane wore at one point in the production. Again, not in the script, but guess what? They came up with a Nancy t-shirt in this production. They used the same musical choices that Joe used um, that Terrence did not indicate, and did not choose from the script. Um, so, you know, interesting question here about the relationship between the creative ownership between the designer and the director. So, I mean, and, and again, the, the Caldwell is leaning on anything trying to say, how can you say you own the creation of that light if there's a lighting design? But, you know, so there's a question of creating the, um, you know, creating the idea for the rectangles of light. And clearly a director can't own the idea of using a block of light as a, uh, to depict a room or a scene. But again, it's how these solutions were created and how they were connected here. Um, there's a theory in the law called look and feel in copyright law. And basically, you can't protect looks and feels, you know, like you can't protect ideas. And where this came up is actually in litigation between Apple, Computer, and, Mac and, and uh, Microsoft, where Apple claimed that all of you who are familiar with the respective desktops, claimed indeed that the desktop of, of Microsoft, of Windows, had the look and feel of, um, uh, of, of the Mac. 
They lost the case because the law is very, they lost the case for a lot of reasons, one of which, and the most interesting of which is that, is that in the end it's Xerox who had created much of the original concept of the desktop, uh, and not Apple, and there was a whole question of under whose contract or who owned what, and it was a very interesting piece. But the theory of law and look and feel is that the courts say that basically they don't want to protect something as vague as a look or feel of something, of some creation. However, when someone can show that another party undertook to copy with slavish detail the look and feel of another's work, the court will be much quicker or will intervene and accept a claim that something has been taken and used or created by another. And that's one of the underlying theories we, we, we have here. Because again, you can't protect ideas. You know, so, so really there is a whole issue of the look and feel in the Mattel case. We subsequently found out that the producer was up here and not only got the producer and director, same person, um, was up here and not only got the photographs and other details, but managed to see the production there at least two times, we know of. And he set up designers who, you know, uh, um, got on stage after seeing the Broadway production and actually took measurements um, and uh, uh, walked around the stage. They had the benefit of the prop list that was in the French, uh, excuse me, the Drama's Play Service script, uh, again, including props that were nowhere, ter that Terrence never put in any of his, uh, he put in his script or, or hadn't conceived or created, but created by Joe and uh, put into that production. We are, that, what has happened in there is, uh, and then I'm, I'm about to finish. Uh, uh, sorry, I thought <laughs> Um, the, uh, what had happened with Joe is, uh, um, the, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the jurisdiction, that's, that's what, what happened is, in this case, there was a tentative settlement that we thought was about to, we were about to reach certain sum of money, again, not to be disclosed, and a, and a public acknowledgement that Joe's working in tape. What happened, though, that there was such a firestorm of publicity that not only up here, but that the Florida press found fascinating, and they jumped all over it. And this guy, who was, you know, the major artistic figure in this community, was, you know, completely humiliated uh, and affronted and responded by the, the way people used to do in these situations. You know, I'll sue you, you can't do this. And he has countersued Joe for slander and defamation and libel and saying all these terrible things about him that he copied his work. Um, we don't take that case terribly seriously, and I don't think they do either. Um, but uh, they have, rather than dealing with any admission or recognition, they have, we think, found a lawyer doing this pro bono. Um, and there has been an enormous amount of litigation over whether we can sue in New York or not. We initially lost the right to sue in New York, and we were, we were down in Florida. We then found out in discovery that when they said they had no New York contacts, that in fact they have hundreds of subscribers up here, you know, the Snowbirds, and that they're right up here, they raise money up here, they come up here and get rights. So we're in, we're, we have a motion pending in the federal court to remove it back into New York now that we know about it. And we've begun uh, depositions. Uh, 
So the case is, is proceeding. They made a motion to dismiss, and this is the most significant part, saying that we did not state a legally cognizable claim. We did not state a claim that has any recognition in the law. How can a director claim that he or she owns anything under copyright law or another theory which is called the Lanham Act, which is where people pass off their work as, as others, where they pass off what they have as someone else's. The people who we know most about that are the people who are selling watches down on the street, you know, who are passing off what they're selling as Longines or Rolex or whatever else. There, there's something called the Lanham Act where these people can be prosecuted under that um, for civil uh, damages. We've brought the Lanham claim against them, which avoids some of the complex copyright technical issues, basically saying that this director passed off his production as the Michael Hall production when it's the Joe Mantel production. We actually think that's a clearer uh, and, and uh, surer part of our legal case than some of the copyright questions, which are, which are much tougher to deal with. Um, anyhow, a court dealing with a motion they brought to dismiss, which was the first litigation squarely on this point, held both, uh, well, held in, held the Florida court held that indeed uh, Joe had stated a legal claim, that there was a legal basis to proceed, and that uh, there was a legal theory that supported a claim of property rights on behalf of the director. So we have established that very important principle already in this case. Now, uh, what the facts will do and where it goes uh, remains to be determined. I think we should open it up for questions and comments before I say anything. My question is addressed to getting very pragmatic recommendations by the union and the lawyer on how to protect our rights. Um, and I'm not quite sure I understand the distinction that Barbara drew to begin with. Um, for example, and I'll, I'll, I'll give two quick questions. One is, how does Gutierrez license his work for Texas when he... Um, when the lesser estate is involved with ownership of and that ends up in Dramatis Play Service and now becomes the property of the playwright who now decides that that was the best solution and therefore he now incorporates it. So again, that involves movement, but it involves something else. So I'm not quite sure of the distinction between the two. Um, well, and I, I want some recommendations, practical. Well, legal things I can do to protect myself. Right. Well, first of all, I, you know, I was trying to make the distinction. And your second example of, of the scene that you, in working on developing this play and premiering this play, decided would be better, I mean, it was your idea to move it outside, um, is really a relationship that needs to be established between you and the writer from the very beginning. Um, we have no agreement with the Dramatist Guild. In fact, the Dramatist Guild has been very hesitant about even getting together with us to discuss this issue. This frightens them a lot. Um, we have put together some samples of um, director playwright agreements that we can certainly let you look at, uh, that you can try on your own, unfortunately. I've never had success with any of but we, we have no we have no legal ability at but if this I protect point, that movement, that choreography or whatever under copyright, should it not then be do I not have a suit to say Drama's play service has no right to put that into the script? 
It really depends on what, I mean, the, the answer is I don't know. The issue is, you know, the issue is typically and best addressed in what we call a collaboration agreement with the playwright. We have found that the result of a lot of these issues that we're talking about in wrestling, where we don't know the answer, um, has, has led more and more playwrights, we think, to be more open to collaboration agreements. We think that since the outbreak of this litigation, since the debate over these issues, that there has, has been some opening in, um, with the writer's community, the drama's community, to entertain more often than not a collaboration agreement. Now, that being said, there are certain playwrights who would rather go to their grave than enter into a collaboration agreement. And some tell us that there's a real generational split in the dramatist guild on this issue that the, some of the more senior and uh, uh, longer members of the uh, association are, are dead set against any kind of recognition of a director having an interest in what the player does. And among many of the younger members, they are used to working with directors in a much more collaborative way and are very open to doing some form of collaboration agreement which avoids these issues. So, you know, yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to speak to that um, a little bit because, um, interestingly enough, as murky as some of these cases have been um, legally, the ones that we've spent most of our time talking about so far, it seems pretty cut and dried to me. I mean, the much murkier area is the area that you just brought up. And I I've certainly spent most of my career working on new plays with writers. So that's the one that, that interests me and concerns me the most. Found their agents are willing. You, well, the interesting thing is um, that... I, there has definitely been movement in that area in the last few years, but it 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 comes down to the relationship absolutely between the director and the writer. But what I found is aided significantly by the various agents and how the agents will sometimes support that or not because the dramatist guild is so dead set against it, and they will always counsel their writers not to give the directors anything. Um, but I, I've certainly found over the years that I've, in a number of cases, and, and in the same way that Jerry Gutierrez, for example, you know, made a real distinction in terms of the, the physical aspects, the staging aspects of his productions, um, those two, it is, it's, it's, it's very murky. Uh, I, I have worked with writers sometimes for years, you know, on plays that sometimes come to fruition and sometimes don't. Um, but in terms of whatever my person, my contribution has been, there have been times when I have not felt that my contribution has warranted my asking for a portion of their subsidiary rights. There have been other times when I really feel as though the contribution has been very significant, and that's when I have asked for it. Um, and and I, you know, increasingly, you know, as uh, the credits have mounted up and so forth, and successful productions or whatever. I certainly had more leverage, but I will just say, without getting at all specific, I'm in the situation right now where I've been working on a project for two and a half years, and it's in, in my own stupidity, we, we had a kind of co uh, contractual agreement, but it's gone so far beyond that because we've, I've done major, major work with this writer. It's, it's actually a musical. And um, 
we've done a variety of readings which have taken an enormous <laughs> amount of time with actors and singing and blah, 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 blah. And so we've now, my agent all along has been saying, this is ridiculous, you cannot do any more work on this until you really get what is basically the industry standard, and of course some people get less and some people get more than this, but the industry standard seems to be 5%. That, and, and that's basically what I have gotten in the past on other projects. And right now, you know, I, I may have to decide whether to walk away from this because I'm not getting cooperation on the other side. You're saying 5% of the author's royalties? Correct. Except on the production you direct. It's on any income, any ancillary income of the playwright on where, where you don't receive the records. What about for TV? Hmm? Well, that's in the SSDC contract. Right, that's in the contract. So, I mean, that's, that's quite often, unfortunately, what it comes down to when it's killing me, but I, I'm going to have to stand by this because I really feel at this point but I can't continue to work on this because, you know, it's been major, major contributions, I feel, um, in terms of you know, structurally, plot, and everything else. And have been able to renegotiate something the way Lynn Thompson probably should have renegotiated. Correct. That's, that's where we are right now, and we seem to be at an impasse. So I'm just saying, and that's, that's three years of work. And you know, just to finish that, that if she had made an issue that would have affected the legal outcome of the case because the case turned on the fact uh, that there there was an understanding that her work would merge into his. That there never was any effort for her to say my work is separate from and independent. Mm -hmm. That the court basically relied on this merger doctrine that where there is no indication of an intent and a collaborative work, a joint work, um, and someone permits someone to copyright. That, uh, that absent some expression that, no, I want to withhold what's mine, um, that it will be deemed merged. Can, can you mention the, the Gutierrez example that I gave you, what, what he was legally able to license and what he wasn't, and depending upon the lesser... You know, I mean, the, the question is, how much is enough? And, and, and you know, and, I, and the answer is, I, I'm not sure. Is one scene enough? Maybe. I mean, if you were to say, hold up, that this script includes something that you didn't create, I did. And if you were to then write, or you know, you or your lawyer to write Stanley French or Drama's Play Service and say, if you publish this and say that it's the author's, that's not true. This is, this is mine. I guess what I'm asking, if the lesser had stated wanted to, they could have said no to his licensing his production. No, they, they, they obtained a right. They, the, right. Cap, the, the Texas production obtained the rights from the lesser that's where they had to start from. You can't do it without the author's approval. Right. The author said you can do the production. And you can do the version of the production in terms of the script structure that was done in the <coughs> door. So, he, he, he so they had obtained the rights from the lesser state. Then they said, hey, wait a minute, we want to do all that stuff that Guterres came up with. And they recognized that it wasn't in the script. That they, that they wanted to do what they saw in New York. And, and these people said, we better go to Jerry and get some Let's okay, get some other people. Um, going back to that first scenario that you were talking about, because Love, Ballad, Passion, and Bella, both were very high-profile shows that ran for a number of years, very well documented in photographs and even videotapes. Now, on the other side of the coin, for example, 
inspired directed and choreographed show four or five years ago and resulted in my concept that the numbers of stage in a very unique sensibility in a very unique way. And a director four or five years later comes along and takes those ideas and stages them in another production. How can I prove without having, you know, photographs or videotapes you're not allowed to have at regional theaters, how can I prove that those are my ideas? It's just my word against his, isn't it? And how, how do I protect myself against that? Well, you should document. I mean, how, that, I mean well, even if you have to write it down. I mean, even if you write it or sketch it or... No, I mean, it strikes me there are many ways that the playwright hands you a script day one. I would certainly urge you to keep drafts of that script day one and that script that finally reflects the production that happened on stage. Um, so there's where you begin. What, ha what started here and what happened over here? And then the question is, how'd you get from here to here? Um, and or what's in the script and what's not in the script most significantly and then what's not in the script you can certainly document and in fact unless you can document it you couldn't copyright it if you wanted to copyright and that is really writing and recording and fixing what your stage directions were I have a question are you talking about an original production or no, no you're talking about a play that already, already existed but probably already published yeah that a director had seen, I know that he had seen the production two or three times, mm. specifically told me he liked this, 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 and this about it, and he's now going to stage it someplace else. I'm concerned that I'm going to see my work up on stage. Uh, I guess my, my, also my other question in conjunction with that, do people ever see a day where the directors will, that videotapes will be allowed to be made of a director's work? So the director can say, hey, here's the date five years ago, I did this. I, well, the biggest problem we have there is with actors' equity at this point. I mean, that they're really greatly concerned about that whole issue. Um, in fact, I sent on to Ron just recently, I got a letter from Alan Eisenberg. There is um, some spot on the web that you can go to, and it's obviously some amateur fellow who has videotaped surreptitiously all kinds of shows. I mean, the list goes on forever and ever. And you can you know, purchase them from him. Um, and this is, you know, something that the producers, that everybody's going to have to look into as, you know, this sort of telecommunication thing gets wider and wider and how can we really, really protect that. Um, yeah, it's I, I would hope that, I hope down, down the road, I mean, we haven't done too much here, but we've begun, we have a little bit of discussion here, but I, I think it would be wonderful if we could get away where we could videotape a production and give the actors and others who were concerned about you know being used commercially enough comfort where that production would be where that tape would be held no different than the Lincoln Center archives. It would be I mean, a record so. of, of what was done there. And and that's something that I think is worthy of exploration and, and maybe one of the outgrowths of this issue. Well, one thing that's emerged, especially as a result of the Joe Mantello case, and I guess Jerry's as well, uh, but especially Joe's because it was a new production, you know, is that we are going to the yeah, the, the publishing houses and, you know, we're, we're really trying to make strides into the published scripts not containing our 
stage directions, plus the ground plan, plus the costume plot and all of that, which of course has been around for God knows how many years since scripts started being published. So that's an effort that's being made, and, and Barbara should speak to that because she's actually sort of talking to these people. Well, we went down to Samuel French, Ted Pappison, Julie Boyd, and I uh, to talk to Charlie Van Nostrum about, uh, he couldn't have been more cordial. I, I mean, I think everybody's nervous, you know, that they're going to get sued or that somehow or another we're going to say you have to take every script off the market and redo it, you know. I think they're really worried about that. But we, we sort of looked at various examples of scripts and, and sort of said, you know, look, Charlie, here, where did this come from and why is this here? Uh, a really humorous one, though, is to look at proposals, which is a Joe Mantello script. doesn't have anything in it that came out after Love Battle Convention. doesn't have a thing in it. Um, <laughs> so here, look at this one. Um, but, you know, basically what his position is is that they, the, the playwright acknowledges, you know, by contract with Samuel French that he has all the rights to everything that he has submitted. I mean, right then and there, he does it. And I think Samuel French has probably just gone like that and said, okay, and published it. And now they're obviously getting a little nervous. And one of the things that we talked to him about, and he seemed to be willing to explore it, because it could mean potential revenue. And that was printing the script as a text and then printing uh, an addendum that were the production values that you could rent the script, you know, as written, or, and if you wanted, you could then uh, rent the production values, you know, the light plot, the costumes, the, the, the um, set dire the directions, etc., in another smaller document, and pay for that as well. And there is some precedent. From which we would get. What, pr from which we would get subsidiary rights. Um, and Samuel French would also make some money. So, but there there is precedent for this. For example, if if you can rent uh, the musical Crazy for You with or without Susan Stroman's choreography. So there are there are publishers that have done that kind of thing. So if you know if somebody really wants to do in their community, you know that New York production or that original premiere production that there is a way for them to do that legally and with compensation. Talking to the, you know, we have representatives in the designers union, I think it's a great idea for them because, again, it's much clearer. I mean, you know, we all wonder about certain situations, but for the designers to say and to go to the publishers and say, look it, sell the script, and then you can sell the addendum to the script. And a lot of, you know, school productions and community productions who use those scripts would love the opportunity not just to get a ground plan, but to get all the wonderful details. And if it could be sold as an add-on at some even nominal cost, it's money that these designers are not getting now. You know, it's an opportunity that I hope will be you know hope will be mined. And then then as and when appropriate for stage directions to go, that that would be yet another element. But I think again, where it's so clear and in a way so simple that I think there's an enormous income opportunity, enormous way to, you know, to, you know, to, to tap into the selling rights uh, and getting uh, the designers some, some recompense, rather than for designers to say, oh, I've seen my sets ripped off all over the country, which is as if it's, 
you know, the, the grand tradition of the theater. Well, I mean, maybe it's my lawyerly background, but I don't think that makes any sense. Well, I, I will say that Char Charlie challenged us to come up with, I mean, he's willing to do a test case. Okay. I mean, if we could find a writer, director, designers that are willing to sort of go down this path with us, then he's willing to try to put something like that out there on the market and see if, if it works. So... We're willing. He hasn't, uh, uh, Charlie hasn't uh, mentioned this to me. We were talking in the fall about a uh, <coughs> recently closed, well, recently in the last year or so, Broadway musical. And uh, we had heard that there may be some <coughs> fair amount of detail with respect to the designs, uh, particularly seen in concert. Published. Published. And uh, he assured me, indeed, there wasn't, and invited the designers to review uh, the galleys. With, uh, with him. Uh, so he didn't mention this idea of selling an addendum, but I think it's a great idea. Yeah, and we'll, we'll look into it. Tom? Would you recommend that a, a director present a collaboration agreement to a writer? Okay, hello. Right after hello. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, the, uh, that's another one. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would love to hear what other people's experiences are. It, you know, God, it's so What were some of the instances so that you walked away from, like after you were involved, or that you really felt? You know, what were some of the, you know, what was some of the process that, that you know what I, I I haven't, this is, the, the one I'm currently talking about is the only one where I, I may have to walk away. Others I've gotten, and then prior to that, of course, I... I sincerely wish I had gotten an agreement on things that I didn't, and I'd be a much richer person. But um, there haven't been, except for this this one. And um, in a number of cases, writers actually, in two cases, writers actually stepped forward and said, without my asking, I'm going to give you this. And in one, you know, the, the agent, his agent screamed at him not to do it, and he said, tough, you know, We've been working on this for a long time. Her contribution really counts. It's been significant, and, and I, I want to give it to her. And in other cases, agents have actually encouraged their, uh, or my agent has really put the lean on, and because we really had a wonderful working relationship that we wanted to continue, the writer has seemed to give it to me, and, and not begrudgingly. Um, but in answer to your question, I've never said from day one, look, if we're going to work together, this is... You know, but there have been times when I haven't come forward soon enough, and it and it does get very awkward sometimes. And you're afraid that the thing's going to fall apart, so you let it go on longer than it should. And um, in my experience, I've had writers send a collaboration agreement to the to the dramatist guild, and, it, and and then come back and walk away from correct after I've spent significant yes. And that will always happen when they go to the dramatist guild, and that's why hopefully, if it's the writer and his or her agent, you have a much better chance because well, the dramatist. What I think might help is if there was some type of standardized director collaboration agreement that the directors could present to the writer that um, is in some way validated by our union so that it makes us easier to say to them, look, the union suggests that we start this way. Whether or not the right, we do have those, and I know that in a number of cases I've checked with Catherine Happel, who actually had 
a number of these agreements available, you know, basically agreements that have been drawn up between directors and writers in the past with, you know, names deleted, and, and they come in a variety of forms, I mean, you know, um, and those have been sent. Try I think that's a great idea. A, a truly I mean, one legal, standardized. It's legal I think that's a great say, idea. This is that my union suggests. And to say this is standard industry practice. And then, of course, they're not people. I, you know, I also run a not for profit company, as some other people in the room do. And it, it, seems, it seems to blend in with the writer in, in a way I'm not comfortable with, that I'm a producer too. And I'm asking for something that a producer shouldn't be asking for, that a right. director should be asking for. I think that's a great idea. Okay. The other comment I'd like to share just with the, with the group has to do with videotaping, in that I, did, I directed a production this summer in, in, in uh, Europe. And as part of the contract, I, the theater asked for the right to videotape the production. And I insisted it be only for archival use so that they can book the play in festivals because that certainly served me as a director. However, I did ask for a copy in the contract so that I could submit it as for grants. And it's the first time I've had the opportunity to address this issue for myself where I didn't have to deal with Actors' Equity, but I did want a copy because I found that I'm being asked for a copy of my work now when I submit for grants. And I, I, I don't have a copy. Well, one of the things that we've been thinking about, you know, Actors' Equity does allow a certain amount of B-roll to be shot for a production broadcast and for commercials. I mean, they can they can shoot a certain amount, and but they can only use another portion of it. And we're thinking in our next round of negotiations that we're going to ask that the director and or choreographer get a copy of the B-roll that the organization, at least at the beginning, and especially for people who really want to try to put together some sort of portfolio. I mean, it may be a snippet, but at least it's there. So that's one thing we thought of as well. Michael, or did you, Michael, are you okay? Um, so just the, the videotaping thing also, if there was some way of saying, well, you, know, you can put some ugly imprint on it. Could be and can yeah, be, and there, and there have been. I mean, there's some groups who work on a collaborative basis. Mm -hmm. you know, some theater groups that way, when they, they share creative, you know. But I think those are those are either companies or. But, but everybody it, on the core is going to do this job. But I mean, that was the largesse of, of Michael Bennett. But, but there's nothing that's like standardized. I think where we go, you know, where the law goes here, and how aggressive artists, designers, and uh, directors, and choreographers, and dramaturgs for that, you know, assert these rights, I think it is going to force 
a greater recognition of the collaborative nature of the business and the recognition that, you know, that the old model of the playwright getting all rights forever for everything and without any legal obligation to share is maybe not reflective of, of the creative process. So I think that's why people are upset over it. That's why people are threatened by this. Because I think that's where it will go as, as, an, as it develops. And as people increasingly answer, you know, ask these questions, as people go forward with collaboration agreements, I mean, every time you do it, you're helping the cause. Because the more and more authors and dramas hear about this and have to respond to this, and the more times their colleagues do it, the more accepted it becomes. And I even think that the Dramatist Guild's resistance here has been shaped. There's been a lot of debate among the Dramatist Guild about whether it's appropriate or not, and many within the Dramatist Guild who say, yes, it's absolutely appropriate. It furthers the, the uh, interests of the playwright by undertaking or participating in recognizing the collaboration. Getting back to the question of what directors can do to protect themselves. I mean, do you recommend doing what Jerry Gutierrez did and sending copies of, of stage managers, you know, copies of scripts that have their direction to be copyrighted? Is that something that everybody should, by, as a matter of course, do on every production? Or? I wouldn't say as a matter of course for every production because I'm not sure every, you know, what's done in every production warrants that. Um, but where a director feels that he or she has made such a substantial contribution that really stands with stands independently and really is a part of uh, whose replication would be a uh, you know very discreet and recognizable yeah when when it, when it reaches some critical mass and this is a very uh, uncertain point that that should be recorded not in the stage manager script may not be enough it should be supplemented it should be clear and it should be understandable to any third party what happened and, and what's done. There. One of the things I don't like about the Mantello case is uh, the what was filed there. It wasn't clear enough and, and, and uh, discreet enough. So, you know, but how it's done. <laughs> Indeed. But I would venture to say any new production should be. Any new production mm -hmm. should be. And you can cover it almost anything new as long as it's play. a fixed new play. Right. New play. Every new, every Sorry, new play, play is what I meant. Yeah, Chris? If you took a script and wrote your stage directions in red ink or, or you know, blue or purple or whatever it is, and you when you file the copyright, you indicate that you are filing only the stage directions recorded in such, you know, in the margin on blank ink and, and insert no claim of copyright or ownership with respect to the typewritten text, that, that would be clear. My choreography, I mean, you know, you can own choreography to the Nutcracker without asserting that you own Tchaikovsky's music. Other questions? Which area No, I, I can't tell you offhand, offhand what the form is, but you know we can get you that. And, and we, you know, and, and one of the things we should probably will be doing at the SSDC is setting up the forms so you can get them through the SSDC. And, you know, uh, and, and they're very simple forms. 
Yeah. What specific information would you have to submit? I mean, I imagine dating. Would that be would that be like one of the primary things? Mm -hmm. to copyright? You know, copyright. You don't have to file to own a copy. It used to be that you only own a copyright if you file. They changed the law and they removed the filing requirement. But what filing does, and the whole purpose of filing is, is making a record somewhere of what you created and sort of putting it aside and saying, I'm sending down this record of what I created, so if there's ever an issue down the road, I'll have this. So I'm not saying, you know, that to own a copyright or own intellectual property, you don't have to go through this filing requirement. But what it does is a very helpful record and lends credibility to the claim of what you created and what someone else created by making the distinction clear in some recordable form. You know, the easiest one would be a videotape, where you would say, I am, I am filing for all of the movement, you know, and these design choices and these creation of these props, and you specify what part of it is, you know, that you were. I have a question. How difficult do you think it would be for us to start lobbying to do more archival videotaping? Do you think it's going to, I mean, and, and stating why? For the obvious reason. Do you think it's a huge one? I mean, there's precedence here in New York. I think it would be a great thing to go for. I really, I think it'd be great, and I think even many actors would to have this record. And whoever said it's a great idea to have it done where you know you can have an orange line going through the middle of it, um, or something that or makes it, it not commercial, <laughs> or on top of it, or whatever it may be, um, um, or something, or, or just every you know thirty seconds to have something you know right. stamped on. There's well, so many ways to do that that I I think it'd be a great thing to get the artistic community together, the designers, the actors, the directors, and, and and the dramatists for that matter. Um, and to say, you know, let's talk about creating archival records that we can use. You know. Is it only actors' equity, or is it also like the licensing companies like NTI or um, Ed Whitmark that are saying you can't copyright? Not copyright. You, you, mean, you mean videotaping? I'm videotaping. I don't know. I, I only know the actors' equity objection. My understanding is that it's also the licensing International because they have to, they have to. That comes from their agreement with the with the playwright, and they also want to protect their rights. If videotapes get out there, what it permits is if you can get a video, you know, a video, you can, you know, copy the script. But the Music Theater International makes their own videotapes. Right. I mean, you know. but they're, you know, but they number them. You know, yeah. I mean, it's no. that kind of security. The problem. Well, that people would have is that these tapes get out there, there, there are abuses possible. Well, Paul and I will take it upon ourselves to start with Alan Eisenberg and see where we can go. I think so. I think it's easy to uh, start with the idea of the B-roll footage. It's 15 minutes that it's down to three, so we all know that rule, and that's pretty good looking footage. Uh, I think we can at least start with there so the directors would have, if nothing else, that B-roll footage to develop a, a resume, a video resume. Right. And then we'll keep. We'll just keep asking this question. Yeah. I mean, the issue is, is that I think this is it's going to happen anyway. It should happen under a standard and an aegis. I mean, if you're going to have all these people sneaking in video cams, 
you know, to performances and stuff, it's, it's, it's going to happen anyway. So we ought to be able to. Yeah. Something else that's happening that I'm finding, not so much now, but over the last couple of years, if a theater interviews me for a show, let's just say Crazy Duke, and use that as an example, they'll ask me if I can recreate the Broadway choreography. And usually, I'll just say, no, I wasn't associated with production in B. I don't want to do that choreography, I want to do my own. Is this, I mean, is there some way some theaters should start, you know, not asking us to do that? Because that's, that's violation of Susan Stroman's work. Does that happen a lot? Not less, less and less. But it happens occasionally. Well, I'll lose a job because I can't create the program. You should call us. It's interesting. We've, we've had also the reverse kind of thing happen. We have had <coughs> certain producers want to put in a rider that the director um, vouches for the fact that everything that he indemnifies him from any kind of lawsuit by saying this is my creation and I'm not copying it. That's where this is going to land up because it is a problem of director to director. Barbara pointed out again. And you know, that's really where we're going to land up and where the producer's going to say, hey, you know, you've got to then tell me that your work is original. Because I think, I think the litigation, I think the SSDC is doing weird. You know, I'm very proud to be associated with it because I think it's having, you know, enormous effect in the community. I think it is stopping and slowing people down from where before they sort of thought they had the right to say, hey, give me that production, give me that choreography, give me that direction, and that, hey, nobody stopped. I think, you know, the consciousness, it's maybe glacial, but it's beginning to change. Just an anecdote back about the equity. Um, a colleague of mine, a fellow lighting designer, uh, needed to look at the videotape that was done for understudies for production that was going into remount. They hadn't done it for a number of months, so she just needed to go back and check the blocking stuff so she could retrieve the lighting. Um, she needed to go back and review a scene that they had just gone through, which was rather complicated, and she was not allowed by equity to rewind the tape to replay the scene and had to book a separate second tape to run straight through for two and a half hours in order to fix the scene and was not allowed to bring in any script, any of her own notes, it was notes that she created. So just to demonstrate the hypersensitivity, and this was within the last 12 months. Hmm. Just so you know. Okay, well that's about all the time we have. I'm sure there are a lot more questions and I encourage you to keep, uh, keep discussing the issue. Um, I wanted to uh, have you join me in thanking our guests this afternoon. Thank you for listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.